Wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players by badminton players proudly brought to you by Valan. We talk all things badminton and aim to inspire you to be better in your game and in life by celebrating the people and stories of our global badminton community, whether they be past or present professional players, social players, officials or fans. We're your hosts, Jeff and Henry, and we love badminton. From the bottom of our hearts, we'd just like to say thank you to everyone who has listened to, shared and been part of the podcast. It wouldn't be possible without you all. If you do enjoy our episodes and can spare just a couple of dollars each month, you can really help keep the podcast going by supporting us on Patreon. Just visit www.patreon.com slash Podcast. We'll leave the link in the description. As people who love badminton, we all know that it's not just about the sport itself. It's about the connections you make and the things that it teaches you as a person that you're able to bring to all of the other parts of your life. That's why we want to introduce you to the book Mirror of Magico, written by Al Liao, a former Taiwanese national badminton player who is as passionate about badminton as us. For those who love Harry Potter, you want to give this one a read because Al has authored a fantasy story where three different characters with varying personalities go on a journey of adventure and learning. And they realize that things don't just happen to you, they happen because of you. And by being yourself and spending time in your dreams, you can conquer the evils and be the best version of yourself. So make sure you check it out. Mirror of Magico, written by Ao Liao. You can find it in all leading bookstores and we'll leave the link in the podcast description. Alrighty, so on this episode of the podcast, we have Stuart Brio. I work with Stuart on a day-to-day basis, I'd probably say, hour-to-hour basis. Just a bit of background about him. He was an Olympian at the 2004 Olympic Games in Athens. He's played three Commonwealth Games. He was in the BWF World Tour, so playing tournaments internationally for 10 years plus. From the coaching perspective, he's been the Australian Youth Olympic coach twice. And just recently, he was at the Tokyo 2020 Games with the Australian team for the Olympics there. Outside of badminton, he is a very avid golfer and he's currently on a handicap of just plus one, almost going pro there, I think. It will be difficult and it will be a long road, but I look forward to the day that we, and I think we're getting there, right? We sit down and watch a match now versus Victor and Momoda, and we still see Denmark and Japan. If you go and watch a tennis match against Federer versus Nadal, you see Federer versus Nadal, you don't see Switzerland versus Spain. And I think that's where we need to go with the sport if we want it to get to where we all hope it ever gets to. We need to create stars and it doesn't matter what country. There's nothing wrong with a, a young badminton player in Australia having Victor's name on his back and wanting to replicate what Victor's done. For me, that's awesome. Steve, welcome on to this episode of the Badminton Podcast. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Henry. So... Why did you choose badminton instead of golf, by the way? 
Actually, it was a choice between badminton and tennis when I was young. I used to be quite a good tennis player, and I mean when I was really young, so 9, 10, 11, 12. So I played both badminton and tennis and and was essentially in the Australian team for both. And then I got to the age of about 11 or 12, and the tennis coaches actually told me I had to choose a sport to focus on. So I don't know why, but I chose badminton. Surprised that you chose badminton. I'm glad you chose badminton, Stu, but when your tennis coaches are asking you to choose, I'm very surprised that you've gone and um, picked badminton instead. Do you regret that decision, Stu, looking back at your career? Or would you have gone the other way if you could choose? When I, back then, actually, when I was number two, I was number two in Australia at that stage and Mark Philippoussis was number one for those who know Mark. So I guess from a money perspective, everyone's always going to say that I definitely made the wrong decision. Whether I would have ever been any good in tennis, I don't know. So I guess that's always the unknown. But I enjoyed my badminton career and I enjoyed the coaching side of things now. So I'd rather look at the positive of badminton rather than the what if of tennis. Awesome. And then obviously, did your brother, so for those who don't know, uh, Stu's brother is Ashley. He also played for Australia. And he played badminton and not any other sport. Did you have a big influence on that in terms of him wanting to follow his big brother? Do you know? Has he told you? He's never told me. He tells me he was better than me. He tells me lots of things. But no, he never had the tennis lessons. He he just did follow, I guess, the badminton footsteps. And he's only two years younger. So I guess we probably did it together a lot of the time as well. So yeah, it was more of a it was more of a doing it at the same time rather than following in my footsteps. I, I made Australian teams and, and Commonwealth Games teams a lot quicker than what Ash did. But yeah, 2002 was the first Commonwealth Games that we, we made together and then played 2004 Olympics together as well. So not as a doubles pair. He was doubles. I was singles. We did play doubles a couple of tournaments internationally and, and did actually quite well. But that was what helped Ash get into the, into the Australian squad with those results. And then after that, we, uh, well, he found himself a really good partner in Travis Denny and, and they did really well internationally. So there was no need for me to play doubles and, and I'm not that good at doubles anyway. So, uh, so it worked out well. I was going to ask, have you ever lost to him in singles ever? No, no. Okay. But he's lost to me in doubles many times <laughs> in tournaments. So that works well for me. You're older, so that's all right, right? <laughs> Okay. Awesome. Steve. So if we go, so we don't want to bypass your playing career too much, but I guess what were the, before we go into the coaching side, because that's a lot of our topic today is around the coaching side and where we see badminton heading, but in terms of your playing career, 10 plus years playing in the BWF circuits and internationally, et cetera, what would you say looking back on your career as an athlete, as a player, were the highlights and potentially what are the most things, what's the thing that you learned the most as a player that you've been able to take into your professional career, which you're very successful in, as well as your coaching career? From a playing career, I guess I'm obviously I'm proud of being Olympian and a three times Commonwealth Games representative. I think I was probably at my best in 2002, 2003. So for me, Commonwealth Games in Manchester 2002, I was the only men's singles player in the team. The selectors picked four doubles players and one singles player, and that was probably just representative of my ranking compared to a lot of the other Australians in the men's singles, and we also had a really strong couple of doubles pairs. But in that tournament, undefeated in the team's event and lost in the end in the individuals to the, to the gold medalists. So I lost one match for the entire Commonwealth Games for over the two weeks, and I feel like that's probably when I was at my peak and played my best badminton. 
stuck it out till 2006, which was where I retired in Melbourne for the Commonwealth Games. Obviously played 2004 Olympics and, you know, went on that qualification journey that all badminton athletes potentially do in their career to try and qualify for the Olympics. And it's pretty brutal and, but managed to succeed in that. So that was also probably another, a proud moment. And really just the fact that I was, I was number one in Australia for such a long time in the men's singles. So that was probably the career highlights. And then in terms of those things that you, you learned along the way and those experiences, what would you pass on or what were the key things that you would take from it? Yeah, I made lots of mistakes. And actually, interestingly, through my playing career, it just through circumstances, I did a lot of coaching during my playing career. So when we would travel overseas or we'd either travel without a coach and I would always be the one that sat behind the court and coached my peers or my friends or my training partners or team colleagues. And then even sometimes when we did travel with our national coach, Mr. C, he would also often have me sit with him at the back of the court and and do a lot of on-court coaching, running training sessions. So I would often be planning my own session as well as the rest of the group session. And my coach would just check it off and say, yep, that's fine, go and do it. So I sort of learned that coaching side of things, but I was... I think there's lots of wisdom. You know, if you've been there and done it, you learn along the way and sometimes you don't know what you don't know. And when you've been in, on court in pressure situations, I think what I probably learned the best was to actually read the opponent and read the game and understand what's happening on the court at any one time. And I think that helps with my coaching now. You can look at the opposition, even the, the world's very best, and you can you have a fair idea of what's going on in their mind and you can sometimes use that to create some form of advantage. So I guess for me, that's probably one of the things that I learned through my playing career that I've tried to transition into into the coaching career. But the second one, and I think the one that I've probably worked on the most from a coaching perspective is, is around every athlete is an individual and you can't have a set training program that suits everyone. You can't treat everyone the same. You can't talk to everyone. You can't communicate the same way with everyone. Everyone has a certain style that they relate to. So as a coach, you almost have to be you need to be able to say or deliver the same message three, four, five, six, seven different ways for your squad to be able to understand what you're getting at. And I think that's probably what I've taken out from a coaching perspective. Yeah, if we stick on those two points for a moment, Stu, and I guess rolling back to the first one on, I guess, the more analytical side of things, and especially because we do have a lot of listeners that may just be social, recreational players, When you talk about, I guess, reading into the opposition, reading into the players, do you take a systematic approach to it? Is there something that, say, someone listening could say, okay, Stu, I can apply that to my game tomorrow or or the day after that when they do step on the court this weekend? Yeah, I think what I do look for and what I used to look for is I I was always quite focused on making sure that I watched the opponent after every rally. You can pick up on if an athlete's tired, you can pick up on an opponent if they're frustrated, you can pick up all these little triggers that opponents have and you can actually use that. So I would encourage even social players, you know, if you win or lose a point, the first thing I would do as an athlete, I would always look at my opponent, especially if I won the point, because you can see whether they've got over it really quickly and they're happy to move on and then and then you realize that you've got to be super switched on for the next point or you can also see potentially that losing that point really hurt them mentally. And you can then focus even extra hard on the next point to really drive home the advantage that you have. I think I see that from a coaching perspective too. I often watch the other coach and you can pick up little, even the way we all communicate or the way we use our hands, that can give you 
me signals as to what they're asking their opponent or their player to use. And I use that a little bit too. I, I have, you know, I always watch the opponent. I'm trying to always watch the coach and, you know, trying to talk to our players around, well, this is the kind of thing that I think the coach is asking your opponent to do. So we can use that against them a little bit. But yeah, definitely the takeout for me is really watch the opponent and really understand what each point means to them, whether you win or whether you lose. I don't know, Jeff, do you do that um, from a coaching perspective? I've never asked, but I'm not sure whether it's just me or, but I do try and watch a lot. Probably actually, probably not so much. I'll probably look at the player more. Actually, I probably wouldn't look at the coach that much, um, to be absolutely honest. And I would say I'm probably a little bit more tunnel visioned into the player and probably more in comparison because, Stu, I think working together, we know how each other thinks. And with me, you know, it's all about the details, right? So I'm when I'm doing my coaching and looking analytically, I'm looking at little things like service positions and individual shots and habits within shots and stuff. But just my perception of the way you have a look at things is a little bit more big picture, if that's not correct, correct me. Yep. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I feel like that it's a little bit different there in terms of the way that I look in a match. Okay. So moving on to the Olympic side of things. So look, we've had the Tokyo 2020 games, which were delayed 12 months, which obviously from our perspective as coaches for the Australian team, we that put a real kick up in our preparation. But in terms of a preparation for a big event like that, like Henry said, we we probably have some people on here listening who aren't professional players and they might not understand or know what happens behind the scenes before huge tournaments like the Olympics or Commonwealth Games or World Championships or whatever that might be. So from an Australian perspective, what did you guys do before the actual Olympic Games? And do you know of any other countries doing a similar thing? Yeah. Okay. I'll answer this question and I'll say we a lot, but in reality, it was probably a lot of we was Jeff setting up the planning and and arranging everything and making sure everything was spot on. So we as a group decided we wanted to invest heavily in the preparation for Olympics for Tokyo. So we had a few hiccups. We had a couple of players and obviously the listeners would probably understand Australia was very COVID conscious and very strict around the COVID rules. So we had athletes we couldn't actually get on the same court together before Tokyo. The first time they'd actually been on the same court for three or four months was when we arrived into Tokyo. But what we actually did is we created a pre-games training camp. We looked initially for somewhere where it was going to be nice and warm because we wanted to replicate the Tokyo heat. So we found the Gold Coast. We then wanted to replicate the stadium or the arena that we play in because a lot of our training is done in badminton halls that you know have okay size roofs but ultimately they're just a badminton stadium for us when we play on the world tour it's all about big arenas huge roofs lots of space the shuttle travels differently the court feels different so we wanted to replicate that to make sure our athletes were as, as ready as they could be in the lead up to tokyo so we found the biggest possible place we could on the gold coast and we hired we hired out a section of that just for our exclusive use. We imported or were lucky that Yonex in Australia had the exact same court that they were going to use. And there's different types of mats around the world, but we were able to find the exact same one that they were going to use at the Olympics. So we we shipped that to use at Tokyo. So we shipped those up to the Gold Coast. Yeah, we went to a lot of lengths to try and replicate what our athletes were going to find in Tokyo. We live streamed the matches. We had commentators. 
we wrapped up, you know, a lot of our athletes when we go to Tokyo or Olympics, they do have access to physio and massage and that kind of thing, which we, you know, traditionally don't in a badminton Australia program. So we made sure that was available. So they got used to having access to those kind of things. We had a really strong strength and conditioning program while we're at the, on the Gold Coast as well. So again, they had access to the gym. And really what we tried to do is replicate exactly what they would find in Tokyo as best we possibly could. They all stayed together. So again, we tried to replicate that village scenario, all eating together, eating in the same place each day. So we really, Jeff did a huge amount of work, but we really did go to the nth degree to try and find the best possible solution we could find in terms of creating the best opportunity for our athletes. So I think some other countries do the same thing. Most countries would have a pre-games camp of some description where they may be, you know, especially in a COVID year where you sort of lock yourself away, you know, you try and minimize the uh, potential COVID risk, but you also minimize a lot of the external distraction and you focus purely on badminton for that period of time in the lead up. So I'm sure most countries try and do something, whether they go to the lengths that we did in terms of finding the right stadium. You know, I've heard, we've all heard the stories around some of the European countries play loud music or they play crowd noise or they try and replicate what it would be like in a stadium that's completely full. We were able to do the opposite and that was actually easy because we knew there was going to be no crowds. So we would have times where we would train and play matches in pure silence. So they also got to, you know, that's a bit of a foreign feeling from a badminton player. So we also tried to replicate that. But yeah, I guess we did the absolute best we could to try and replicate what would be, what they would find on the ground in Tokyo. Yeah, I remember actually watching one of those live streams of the Australian players at the time as well, Stu. But it's it's very interesting that because it's beyond me, I didn't know that that's what happened that prior to the Olympics that, you know, you made preparations and to create an environment that will replicate an environment that they were going into. That's a bit more, I guess, the generalized approach that you took prior to the Olympics. But earlier you talked about, and I said I would dig into this afterwards, is that your way of coaching is more holistic and individualized. So without, of course, giving any confidential information out, like how did you manage the, I guess, the individualized approach to the preparation for the Olympics uh, across the athletes as well? Yep. So it's actually, yeah, with the team, we had four, four athletes and every one of them is very different. They think differently, they react differently, they like information delivered differently. Some athletes like to do an awful lot of preparation and we were lucky, we obviously, the draw was done so we knew who we had to play. So you could sort of start the preparation as early or as late as you wanted to. So some of our athletes decided that they wanted to know, you know, day number one and day number two of the camp, they wanted to start the preparation of who they were going to play. Others wanted to just get on with their training and focus on the opponent a little bit later on. We had some athletes who, for lots of physio and massage, others don't like it that much at all. So we tailored the program around what they wanted. Some like to spend more time on court with me and others prefer to spend less time on court with me. So again, we manipulated the training to make sure that if they like my type of feeding and if they like me being on the court challenging them, then it doesn't have to particularly be me, but a coach. Then we made sure we were available. There's other athletes that would prefer two or three sparring partners and not be a coach and the coach stand behind the court and watch them and tell them what to do. So there was, yeah, there's lots of different ways in which you can individualize a program or a, um, I guess, in the lead up to the games. We, yeah, 
I guess I've travelled and Jeff would know knows all the players well enough as well. We get to know the way they like information delivered and, or if we have to have, to be honest, if we have to have a tough conversation, there's a certain way we'll have a tough conversation with one of them compared to we might take a different approach on the other one. Sometimes even with the analysis, the athlete likes to go and do it first and then we do it second and then we compare notes. Others prefer us to do it first and then they don't want to do their own analysis. They just want to be told what to do. So I guess there's, we could probably talk for hours about how we, what the individuals like and don't like. But I guess from our perspective, Jeff and I are very conscious of that. And we try and uh, our job is to get the athletes in the best possible mindset and give them the best possible chance to play well. And so I think it's only fair that we, uh, we do what we can to indiv- individualize the program as best we can. Yeah, I guess that's what we're always aiming for. And it's, it's always easier to say than it actually is. I do get it wrong. Absolutely, I do get it wrong sometimes and things don't hit home, but it's just trying to trying to massage it so it actually does. So Stu, in terms of your experience at the Tokyo Games, we'll go into that a little bit here, but in terms of the no crowds and, and just the general atmosphere, look, you've been to the Olympics in, in Athens and just wondering from your perspective how you found the atmosphere there and, and that with, yeah, with all the restrictions in place and, and all that, like how was it actually from inside? Yeah, it was very different, but I'm also really keen for everyone to understand that it was really awesome as well. So, you know, the differences, often when we go to not just Olympics, but when you go to the big tournaments, the countries, I've got friendships with some other coaches from around the world. Some of our players know lots of the other athletes from around the world. So we can often organize matches and joint training sessions and that kind of thing. That did not happen in Tokyo in any way, shape or form because there was this COVID risk that if I was on court with, if the Australian team was on court with the Spanish team, as an example, and one of the Spanish players came down with COVID, then the Australian team would have been wiped out of the tournament as well. So everyone, you know, every country took a very individual approach to the Olympics. So you'd rock up and you would be on your own training court. There would be very little interaction with other countries because everyone was just trying to be safe. That's very different to a normal world tour event or a, or a previous Olympics or Commonwealth Games where there is a bit of, it's a benefit for us to hit against some countries and it's a benefit for them to hit with us in some instances. So often you can find some common ground and you will work together even though you're competitors on the court. So that didn't happen. What often happens at Olympic Games as well is when you fly in, you get your allocation of your room. And obviously, we're part of Team Australia who do an, an, an amazing job to create a team atmosphere. But in a normal Olympics or a normal Commonwealth Games, athletes are quite individual by nature. So, you know, they use team headquarters as a place to sleep, as a place to get some medical treatment. But then in a normal Olympics, you see them sort of just do their own thing. They go and visit friends in, you know, over in other countries. They might go out and see the city. They might, they do what they normally do on a world tour event. In Tokyo, again, that was very different. The Australian team stuck together really closely, more close, not just talking about the badminton team, I'm talking about the entire Olympic team. So Team Australia, the Australian Olympic Committee did an amazing job of creating an environment where all the Australian athletes wanted to spend a majority of their time. So that was reducing our COVID risk. Not many people would spend a lot of time in the in the dining hall. We'd eat and we'd get back to our team headquarters where there was table tennis set up, where there was amazing recoveries, where there was slushies, where there was ice vests, where there was ice bath, ice bath where there was a full gym that Team Australia created and built just for the Australian athletes. There was professional baristas available to make coffee at any time. There was 
what they called a, a food pantry where you could literally order almost any cereal, you know, normal Australian staple, and it would be delivered to your room in, you know, in a few hours time. So we actually had this online supermarket that they imported into it just for the Australian athletes. And there was team, I can't remember what they were called, but they were awesome atmospheres where there's big screen TVs, lounge chairs, almost like a, you know, a mini shop kind of scenario. All this was created to try and keep the Australian team together. And for us, it was an awesome experience. You know, you get home from the stadium, you know, you've had a big long day and then you, you walk in, you walk up to the uh, apartment where we're staying and there's 150 Australians sitting out on a synthetic lawn watching a basketball match that Australia is playing in. So you don't even go to your room, you drop your gear, you grab a seat and you, you sort of become immersed in the atmosphere of the Australian team. So that was different, but a positive different in Tokyo Olympics. What else was there? There's probably also, I think, Henry, you mentioned it, the no crowds. So again, that's very strange for badminton. You know, I guess we probably got used to it over the last 12 months with COVID, but previously to that, it was foreign to enter into a, a world you know, arena where you're playing in a world tour event and, and not having a crowd. To be honest, when we're on court and when I was coaching, I probably can't speak for the players, but I can speak for myself. When I was coaching on court, I probably didn't notice it. But sitting in the stand watching another match, you definitely noticed that there was just nothing around. This big, huge vacuum of of space that wasn't, you know, was filled with a few shirts draped over some seats, but that was about it. So again, that was very different. But to be honest, when we were playing, I didn't feel no, I don't think it's something that would come into your head while you were playing or while we were coaching, but it's certainly something we recognized while you're sitting in the stands watching another another match. Yeah, it sounds like a truly unique experience there, one that an Olympics that I'm sure no one would ever forget within our generations anyway. But it looks like, it sounds like the Australian team were able to create essentially like an ecosystem. And you had me at coffee earlier, Stu, when you said we managed to have baristas there as well, which is fantastic. Now, just a quick word from our sponsors. The Badminton Podcast is brought to you by Volant. Volant was first born out of our frustration with the confusing, bright and unsightly clothes and equipment that we saw in the badminton world. But now it's so much more than that. Our mission is to accelerate the growth of badminton by providing players with products that enhance their love for the sport. All in all, it's high quality gear that makes you look and feel great on and off the court. So make sure you check us out at volantbadminton.com and follow us on our socials at volantbadminton. But yeah, the, the Australians, they did get some really great results, some mixed results as well at the Olympics. But when you look back at the efforts and the results of the Australian team, what are some of the biggest takeaway points, especially if, let's say, the Australian team were listening to this episode, well, what are some of the biggest takeaway points from the Tokyo Games for them? I think, obviously, we've had lots of debriefs and we went through the pros and cons of what happened in Tokyo when the results were able to achieve and where we missed opportunities. So. I think overarching, they're, they're really proud of their performance, which is really positive. I'm proud of the way they went about it. And I'm proud that we had some tough moments in terms of there was some losses that whether we thought we'd win or lose, we maybe thought we'd play better in a certain match. But then there was probably other matches where they were important matches for other countries that were able to, I guess, play a part in the tournament and, and win certain matches, which had big impacts on players getting through to the next round. So obviously, 
Gronje and Sediano beating the, the top Danish pair was a really good win. We probably knew that they had the ability to do it. They, out of our whole preparation, Gronje and Sediano were the two that had the rockiest one with Gronje being stuck in Melbourne and Sediano being stuck in Sydney. They literally weren't on the same badminton court for months on end. Sediana couldn't come to the to the pre-games training camp on the Gold Coast. She wasn't allowed to leave her the Sydney location because of COVID. And so therefore she had to fly straight to Tokyo. So the, I think what we saw there is the first couple of matches, they were rusty. They were a bit slow. They weren't used to what we needed. And by the third match, they were definitely up to speed. And I think they played a world-class match against a, a really good pair. So we saw that as a positive in the end, to be honest, and to be able to knock the Danish out of qualifying for the last eight, I think was it was a really good result. When when it's an important match and there's something on the line, it's good to be able to perform at that level, which is what they did. Maybe the biggest, well, I call it frustration. We probably see it as a real positive, but it's still really frustrating to this day. You know, we had Gronier and and Simon play the the Indos. You know, one of the very first matches of the Olympics, they. Um, they won the first set against a, a truly world-class pair and we've just seen the results that they've achieved over the last few weeks. And then being up 18-15 and, and having an opportunity to create an enormous upset from a world badminton perspective, probably every emotion that I could dis- describe would be wrapped up in that, whether it was probably proud of the way they played. I was frustrated with, what, you know, with the end result. I was frustrated with how they finished the second set. I was super proud of the way they finished the first set. So we had every emotion under the sun, I think, with that match. And But overarchingly, I think that's where the kind of preparation that we put in in the pre-games camp really shone through where they had time and court together. They had really focused hard on on what the game plan was. That was the game plan that I think that we came up with probably worked the best and no one expected it to. So that was a really good result in the end. And women's singles, again, I think it was a, a really strong learning curve for her Winning one and, and losing one, that's a good result, but it's not as good as what we'd hoped for. But I think what it did is it showed that at a certain level, we're very competitive and then we need to make the jump to the next level from a Bam in Australia point of view. So we can compete at a reasonable level on the world circuit, but I think there's a need to take that extra jump. And I think there's a couple of events we can do that in quicker than others, but it's something that we need to work on. And I guess from my perspective, I've heard that debrief a few times, which is okay. Just It just locks it in. And yeah, that step from competitive to actually winning, it is a quite a big step, but hopefully we'll be getting there really soon. Stu, so since the Olympics, we've just had a barricade of tournaments. So we've had Suderman Cup, then Thomas Uber, then Denmark, then French, then Hilo, then Indonesian Masters, then Indonesia Open. Currently, time of recording, we're in the middle of World Tour Finals. And then soon after this episode's release will be the, the World Champs. So there's been a little bit of chatter in terms of how crazy the tournament schedule has been. And we've been seeing injuries left, right and center, people pulling out at one love, one all, like so many people pull out because of injuries and being too tired. What are your thoughts in terms of, of the tournament schedule in general? Yeah, I think you summed it up really well, Jeff. It's, it's crazy. I think we all understand that there's commerciality at play here. We understand that there's a need to have tournaments. We understand that the tournaments create money and that's good for the athletes. It's also good for BWF. I think we all saw this coming, to be honest. When we went from, I guess normally we have the lead up to, to Olympics is, is is quite steady and you can play the tournaments you want to play in the lead up. Now, COVID didn't allow that to happen. So there was an awful lot of non-tournament play that happened before, before Olympics. And then 
And then Olympics was almost the start of, of this schedule that just has really worn players down, worn athletes down and, and just really smashed them into the ground. And when you're playing the level that the World Tour guys are playing and girls are playing at day in, day out, week in, week out, there's a requirement to you know keep fitness levels. You can have a focus on one or two tournaments, but then how do you back up for the third, fourth and fifth one and which one's the most important? And while you're on a hot streak, you want to keep it going. So maybe you know, you win a tournament week number three and you want to keep that form going. So week four and five was going to be a bit more of a relaxation couple of weeks, but you can't because you've got to, I guess you've got to make hay while the sun shines and you've got to keep that momentum going. So then players go too far and then the injuries come and they get too tired and then they got to reset, but they can't because there's another tournament coming up again. So I think it's a big issue and I can, looking through the tournament calendar and Jeff, we were trying to do the the planning for Paris 24 the other day in terms of what tournaments we think our athletes should play. And and the reality is even Paris 24 qualification for us starts in 2022 where we need to start accumulating the right ranking points to then have the right ranking to be able to get into the right events for the qualifying year to then be able to qualify and play in the Olympic year. So when's the period where it all quietens down? I don't actually think there is one. But I do think we need to be better at scheduling. I think we need to be better at understanding that the best players won't play the best tournaments all the time. And I can sort of, I know we're going to get onto this topic, but I can certainly probably see it going down the track of, of tennis where there might be four or five really major, we won't call them grand slams, but there'll be something that are the absolute priority. And then you might see all the best players at those ones. And then at the next level down, you'll see a a scattering of players at the very top that play, you know, they pick and choose a little bit more. Now that's really difficult at the moment with the rules with BWF, but I think there has to be some kind of flexibility come in because there is no way you can keep this program up for the next three years in the lead up to Paris. It, It just, I just don't think it can happen. So so I understand why we're getting the injuries. I can understand why we, and you know, I also don't think it's a great look when you're getting athletes through to the finals and then they play one point and then they stop. Like it's not what the world tour should be. It's not what the BWF will want to happen. And they can sort of, I feel like they can go two ways. They can, they can come down really hard on the players that do that. And that's probably just going to send everyone further away from where we need to be, or they can actually take note of what's going on and they can probably be a little bit more flexible with what you are and aren't allowed to miss from a world tour event perspective. And to be honest, it then actually gives other athletes the opportunity to get experiences, to get wins, to earn more money that they might not have ever earned before because some of the top players will be missing. And I think that helps bring through new stars and there's got to be new messages and and new ideas and, and new faces that come onto the scene because that now becomes a possibility. And then you have your very special events where you have everyone in the world's best plays and the All England grows to even a bigger event and more stature to win that kind of, more prestige to win that if it becomes that real Grand Slam equivalent. I think that's probably the way to, of the future, but that's not where we're at now. And and it seems like every player is being made to play every tournament that's at a certain level and that's not sustainable. Yeah. Look, I, I agree entirely, Stu. Like you said, it, it's not sustainable what we're seeing right now. It's at him, I guess in my own words, it's, it's insanity because what we're seeing play out is as much as I love badminton and watching badminton, watching high level badminton is that we're seeing some of our best players that we would love to continue to see play, but they're leaving round one 
of tournaments. I think it also dilutes the standard, right, a little bit too. So, you know, we want to see the very best badminton on TV. We want to see the very best badminton live. And if you've got athletes that can't produce their best because of fatigue or because of injury or because of whatever, and it's because of the tournament schedule, then I think that's where we need to take a really good look at it because we all love badminton. We all love the sport. We want to see it at its absolute best. And I feel like in some of the matches we're seeing at the moment, we're not seeing that, even though it's a World Tour final. That's just the reality. Yeah. And uh, I think there's a lot of merit to what you mentioned as well, potentially, and I'm not calling it a Grand Slam uh, type series, but having those ultra events, I guess, for this space where the key events that the top players would go to. But I think what the Chinese players do, and I think what Lin Dan back in his glory days did really well was, was scheduling the tournaments and sort of really picking and choosing the ones to play and, of course, outperforming most of the time when, when he does that. So, and, and since, the, since the Tokyo Olympics, we have had, as well as uh, the Sudaman Thomas and Uber Cup, we've had the, sort of the Chinese players disappear for a few months or almost just to uh, rest in preparation for these world championships. So it'll be very interesting to see how these players who have taken a bit of time off since the Tokyo Olympics, how they fare against those who have literally been playing week on week on week playing the same people, not necessarily just from a physical standpoint, but psychologically, like how do you, how do you play the same play each week, every week and sort of back that up, especially when you're coming in one love up the week before. So uh, it'll be very interesting to see that, that play out. But in, yeah, in terms of what your thoughts are on, I guess the break that all these players have had since the Tokyo Olympics, as well as uh, Sudaman Thomas and Uber Cup, like, do you think it's a good move for them? To have done that instead of, I guess, dilute, like you said, dilute the level that they're playing at because they're just constantly competing. Do you think it's a good move for them? I'm not sure whether I'm qualified to talk about um, what China do because I think there's lots of different areas at play in terms of their decision making and whether it's the fact that they wanted their athletes to have a rest or whether it's the fact that the government has stopped a lot of international Chinese sports people from, especially the ones that are tied to that national federation type structure. A lot of the China sports athletes have not been traveling in any way, shape or form. I did hear that there's quite a few of the Chinese, actually all the Chinese are now out of the world championships as well. So there's quite a lot that aren't going to world champs, I'm hearing. So that will also, I feel like the Chinese government has almost said Olympics was Olympics and we'll see everyone again in 2022. They've got the mechanics to be able to get away with that in terms of they've got the infrastructure from a badminton perspective. They've got the competitiveness around the national team and the amount of players. They can replicate really strong tournaments domestically in China. So there's not a huge amount of downside for them. And I think we know China don't need the money in terms of the prize money, right? So it does allow for them to have more flexibility and make these kind of what I'll call bigger picture decisions rather than the tour grind of having to make a dollar week in, week out to be able to, one, justify your spot in a team or two, make the right amount of money to be able to live as a, as a badminton athlete. So I think, yeah, I feel like China have, have almost said that's enough for us. We're comfortable with where we are. We're comfortable with our performance, not just from a badminton perspective, but from a, you know, an Olympic perspective across the entire China team. And the risk is not worth the reward. And yeah, we'll reset and see everyone in, in 2022. I guess, Stu, that is a bit of a different scenario just because I guess from world badminton or Chinese badminton, we've always known that it's very highly regulated, right? There's not 
generally a lot of independent Chinese players. You usually have to be part of the national program to be sent to the, the world-class tournaments, which brings on to just our little next mini discussion, which is around independent players. And how do you see things going in terms of, so we've got like Tyson Ying, we've got like Chan and Go from Malaysia. I'm just picking off some random names who have kind of turned independent and they're playing what they choose to play instead of what the National Federation plays. How do you see that moving into the future in terms of independence versus national programs? Yeah, I think even if I go back as far as when I played, an independent player was probably someone who left the National Federation once they were past their best. They still wanted to play on the tour. They found some sponsors and it was a bit of a lifestyle. So I think we still see those kind of independent players and we will always. Probably what I'm starting to see, I think we're all starting to see now is, and I suspect it comes from Victor, we hear that he's, you know, he's gone to Dubai, he's set up, he's got his own team around him. Again, I don't love the analogy with tennis, but it actually, in my mind, is replicating tennis and the way the way tennis has developed over the years. So, you know, we're all used to seeing the Federers and the Djokovic and the Dahl travel with their team. And the team is doesn't matter whether they're from Switzerland or from wherever, their team is the best people they can put together to create the best result for that athlete. And I think that's the way. Victor's trying to go. I feel like he's trying to create a team, whether it be traveling with, well, he doesn't travel with his own coach yet, but I suspect at some stage that could be a possibility. But he, you know, he's still, I guess he's a bit of a hybrid in the way he's tried to set up that he's got his own plans, but then he will always go back to the Danish team in the lead up to some of the big events. I can see that gap becoming wider. I can see, and I don't know whether it's going to happen in five years or 10 years. It will definitely happen where more money comes into the sport. Athletes can afford to say, National Federation, I don't want to do what you're asking me to do. I've got a better way. I think I've got a better way over here. I've got a better team over here. I've got a strength and conditioning coach from Australia. I've got a, a physio from Japan. I've got a an on-court coach from Indonesia. I've got a, it doesn't matter. I've got a psychology coach. I've got a chef. I've got whatever the players will decide that they need to perform at their best. I feel like they're going to develop those teams around them. Now, that can only happen when the money's right, when the tournament size is right, when the economic conditions allow for this. But I'm sure it will at some stage. And when it does, I suspect we're going to see an awful lot of independent players go down that path. And I suspect it's going to be, you know, be one or two, and then it might be three or four. And then it'll be like tennis where unless you're going to do that, you're not going to be inside the top 50 or you're not going to be inside the top 100. We all know that the National Federation structure, the BWF, really love, I guess they love that structure. It, it allows for control of the players. It allows for control of tournaments and the sport. Again, tennis only went down this path when all the athletes came together and created the WTA from a, a women's tennis perspective. You know, all the players came together and, and created this force that said, you need us to run the sport of badminton. Without us, it's it's not on TV. It's You don't see the stars at the events. And I think at some stage it will get to that. It will be difficult and it will be a long road. But I look forward to the day that we, and I think we're getting there, right? We, we sit down and watch a match now versus Victor and Momoda. And we don't, we still see Denmark and Japan. If you, if you go and watch a tennis match against Federer versus Nadal, you see Federer versus Nadal, you don't see Switzerland versus Spain. And I think that's where we need to go with the sport if we want it to get to where we all hope it ever gets to. We need to create stars and it doesn't matter what country. There's nothing wrong with a 
a young badminton player in Australia having Victor's name on his back and wanting to replicate what Victor's done. For me, that's awesome. Imagine one day that there's a, a nine-year-old in China who's got a Danish person's name on his back or a, you know, a Malaysian person's name on his back. For me, that's when the sport completely changes. And I think we're a long way away from it because every BWF, all the national federations will try and hang on for as long as they possibly can because it, it is the current identity. But I, I can see it moving to where I guess that what's in my mind of, of where it could be. I don't know what you guys think, Jeff. Is that something that you think is a possibility into the future or am I living in some kind of world that won't ever exist? No, I think that it's definitely a possibility now that we've seen Victor do it especially. And we have seen some elements of it, but I've never actually thought about it that deeply before, actually, Stu, in terms of I've never thought of it the way that you put in like Federer versus Nadal. Yeah, I would never see Switzerland versus Spain. Like never, ever, right? It's just the players playing each other. But you're right. If I see Mimoto Axelson, yes, it's Mimoto Axelson, but kind of the, the deeper feeling is, okay, it's Japan versus Denmark, right? So no, I think that it's a really interesting perspective. And I think that's where more money will be able to flood into the system as well. Yeah, we need money to get there. But when we do get there, then it, I think it's going to be more self-sustaining because to get sponsors, you don't have to go through national federations. You don't have to, you know what I mean? It's kind of like a, a completely different kind of ecosystem. Yeah, it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of something triggers something else. And then all of a sudden I've got sponsors that mean that I can pick and choose which tournaments I want to play because I'm financially okay. And then when I do rock up to those tournaments, I'm coming with my own chef. I'm coming with my own massage. I'm coming with my own sports science. I'm coming with my own data analyst. I'm coming with whatever I decide that I need to make me the best player. And I'm happy to invest because the more I invest, the bigger I become, the more money I make, and then I can invest more. And I think that's what we've seen with the tennis players, right? You see the you know, the guys that are sitting 150 and 100 in the world and they're, and they're making good money, but they're still, you know, they're still traveling on their own or they might travel with a few other players and they try and create these teams, but they might share resources. And yet we'll see a, a Federer come to the Australian Open in tennis and he brings an entourage with him and they've all got a purpose and he's paying for the whole lot because they make him a better player on court. And ultimately, that's exactly what we're trying to achieve with every one of our players. We're trying to make them a better player. And if if they decide that they need to invest in, in certain areas, then I feel like that's where it becomes a bit self-fulfilling. The more they invest, the better they get, the more they win, the more money they make, the more they want to invest and get better again. And that's just an athlete's mindset, right? But at the moment, some of that investment, some of that thinking is very much not squashed. That's probably not right, but it's controlled by the national federations and a lot of the national federations will say, this is the coach, this is the support staff, this is who you've got access to. And is it who I really want? Maybe, maybe not. But if it's not, that's when we start to see the independence discussion happen. Yeah. Uh, look, I think maybe it is going to be a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, Stu. And, and I would love for that, that to happen because I guess one of the greatest things about sport and when I look at other sports like tennis or, or even NBA, you know, people walking down the street with a LeBron James singlet or Guernsey or whichever it is, that's sort of a point where I would love to see badminton get to, but it's going to take a concerted effort and it's going to take time as well. But it would be great because I think, yeah, when I think of Nadal, all I think about are the like little bull icon. It's not Spain. It's just that bull icon that, that he has, I think, with his partnership with Nike, that created symbol. So to be able to, to have something like that for, say, Kenta Momoda, 
or whoever it is, Carolina Marin, just like there's a brand around it that would really, really sort of, I guess, elevate the sport to that level of prestige that tennis and the the NBAs of the world would have as well. But Stu, look, there's great discussion. We're on the point of wrapping up now. So before we finish up, we do have a, I guess, a question for you just part of our poll that we've been running on our episodes. And I think we talked about this just before we started this podcast episode is that you don't have a very good smash, but I'm sure it's better than most. So what are the most important things in getting the most power in your smash, Stu? You can choose three. Yeah, I would have said, (laughs) you're definitely right, Henry. My smash was never a weapon. So you're probably asking the wrong person, but obviously having to coach it over the last X amount of years, For me, the three major aspects would be timing is huge and timing in terms of jumping at the right time, twisting your hips at the right time, getting the elbow and wrist through the shuttle at the right time. All that is summed up for me in timing. So that's number one, because I think we can isolate each little area. We can, again, I think the wrist is super important and I'm always talking to our athletes around, you know, the speed of the wrist through the shuttle, sorry, the speed of the wrist creates the racket head speed through the shuttle and we want the real ting to come off the racket to create, you know, we don't want to place the shuttle. We want to hit it somewhere. We don't want to place it. We want it to go where we want it to go. And so for me, that's probably a long way of saying wrist is super important. Hips for me are super important to create that core or maybe it's core is probably a better, a better description to create that strength through the shuttle. But I'd sum it all up by saying timing. Alrighty, so timing is the overarching one and then special mentions within timing with wrist and hips. Yeah, hips slash core. Hip slash core, yep, yep. That body movement, that trunk movement. Yep, yep, that's right. Awesome. Stu, it's been a pleasure having a chat on this episode of the podcast. I think we've covered some really insightful things that I actually wouldn't have thought about myself. So I'm sure all the listeners out there do appreciate that. So if there's anyone out there, Stu, that's got some extra extra questions for you, maybe they want to become an independent player, I don't know. But any questions they might have for you and are asking for a bit of your wisdom, how can they potentially get in contact with you? Jeff, you know my IT skills, so which aren't strong at best. So I am on Instagram, which I think is just Stuart Brio. But I think probably the best way is, is Instagram, Messenger, or the BAM in Australia email. So I think you can probably put that on the podcast afterwards or the description, but happy to receive an email, which I'll probably then send to Jeff anyway and say, can you answer this? Because you'll know more than what I do, but but that, that'll be fine. I'm more than happy to answer or help where I can. Awesome. We'll put your Instagram handle and email in the podcast description. So Stu, from Henry, myself, and everyone out there listening to these episodes, just want to say thanks for coming on and for sharing your wisdom with us all. No worries. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Henry. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Jeff. So from Henry and I at the Badminton Podcast, thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you've enjoyed it or found it useful, be sure to share it with your family, friends, teammates, and someone outside your badminton circle too, because with your help, we can show the world how incredible badminton is. To keep up to date with new episodes and who we're interviewing next, make sure you connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at The Badminton Podcast and on Twitter at The Badminton Pod. Feel free to contact us and ask any questions, give us feedback, or request topics for future episodes. We love hearing from you. 
And remember to check out and shop for your simple and minimalist badminton gear at volantwear.com. Catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.